brothers and sisters, now is the time to open your eyes. If you have not yet woken up to the reality of profiteering and enslavement we've been warning about, I hope you realize we are fast running out of time. The governments of the world and their corporate masters do not want us to speak. Why? Because we are not truths. We expose villains. We exercise demons. Citizens of the world, we are here to help. If you have any interest in waking from your slumber, in retrieving lost, damaged, or stolen memory, we are here for you. We have your back. We are as society. Hello, friend. You've got mail. I'm so excited to be here for another podcast episode of Hello, Friend, all about the series Mr. Robot. Right now we're covering and recapping season one. My name is Margaret. Henry is with me again this week, and today we're here to talk about the fourth episode of season one called Demons, written by Adam Penn and directed by Nisha Ganetra. Well, Henry, what did you think of Demons? So I guess, first of all, I'm, I'm curious, is it demons or daemons? Seems like they're talking more about daemons in this episode. So curious if that's actually what the title referring to or if the title is more referring to demons and making a play on the word. I think it's a little bit of both. And it's funny you mention it because I've always pronounced it daemons when it's spelled D-A-E-M-O-N-S. And then I went to look it up because I was thinking, am I? have I always been mispronouncing that word? And at least one pronunciation, I think they also say it's demons. I will heartily agree to call it demons from now on, because that's what I usually call it, Matt Damons. Yeah, me, me too. Okay, so demons <laughs> it is. Um, so in regards to this episode, title aside, I have to admit the first time I watched it generated a bit of a WTF reaction. Um, it was very David Lynchian the drug visions and the scenes and the playing with reality, uh, at least on first watching, was kind of disorienting for me. So I felt like I got a lot out of this episode, especially upon, I think, the third or fourth time watching it. Because if I add up all the times I've seen season one of Mr. Robot, it's been many times, even though I always tend to forget it. The word daemons was very purposely chosen, and it has a pretty interesting history. In the context, especially of this episode, Elliot talking about daemons and the role that they play in people's lives and society is pretty interesting. And I think that touches on what the concept of daemon was originally, which I think you know something about. Yeah, so Damon's has a couple of really fascinating sources. It was originally a word for a supernatural being that was somehow between gods and humans, sort of like guardians, maybe even angels. It has since evolved into being an archaic form of the word demon. So in the more Western culture, traditional sense of a demon. And also it's used in computer language parlance as a background process. Interesting. So in your reading of demons, do you get the sense that they are known as consciously aware and the forces that they represent are more like people or are they more kind of seen as spirits and more akin to forces that are not necessarily conscious? I see it as something that is 
conjured or even created by humans in certain cases. And I think in Greek mythology, I think they were seen as independent beings. Like anything we humans create, whether it's mythology or technology, it's as much of a reflection of ourselves as it is a consciousness in and of itself. So in a way, demons can be thought of as uh, forces or agents that help drive outcomes. They're like an embodiment of forces or processes that are often tied to some sort of outcome. Uh, and in that way, they have some sort of agency. In the world of technology, daemons were first referred to in MIT. It was used as a thought experiment by a famous physicist named James Clark Maxwell, who created a thought experiment called Maxwell's Demon to illustrate a principle of sorting molecules. But in computer systems, it's used to talk about background processes like initialization files, print schooling, email handling, stuff that doesn't really require conscious human agency in order to work. So these are almost like background processes that run, um, but that still are very significant in determining outcomes. Would that be fair to say? I think so. And it's interesting that it's used to illustrate a lot of what Elliot is facing in terms of his own demons or monsters. Yeah, I think in this episode, for me, I kind of looked at it as an episode in which a lot of consequences played out. In our prior podcast, we talked about choices and consequences and how the various characters were being faced with these choices and consequences. And in some cases, actually seeing some of the repercussions. But I think in this episode, a lot of those things kind of come to a head and we see the actual consequences of the decisions the characters have made in prior episodes. Yeah, and we even see how us as the audience are sort of being created as part of that milieu too, because when we open the episode, Elliot refers to the viewers saying, you know, I even created you. So what does that say about us and who we are and what our role is in that whole infinite loop of processes and plans and what have you? Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at it on two levels. Like we are a daemon that the character Elliot has created for himself, maybe in some respects, to embody some sort of perspective or certain beliefs. But another way, we can look at it in a more meta fashion and say we, the audience of the show, are a daemon that's been created by the show's creators and that we are driving outcomes in that sense. The more I went down that rabbit hole, there was so much that was packed into this episode that talked about that. And it also f was flying fast and loose, mixing metaphors of demons and demons and monsters and personal demons and then evil in the world. There's a saying, the devil's in his strongest while we're looking the other way, like a program running in the background silently while we're busy doing other shit. Demons, they call them. They perform action without user interaction. Monitoring, logging, notifications. Primal urges, repressed memories, unconscious habits. They're always there, always active. We can try to be right. We can try to be good. We can try to make a difference. But it's all bullshit. These intentions are irrelevant. They don't drive us. Demons do. I hear you about the David Lynchian aspects, and I felt like it fit in very well together. I could see why it would be very 
confusing. The thing that was confusing me on the first watching of the episode that I didn't really kind of figure out until I was rewatching the episode for this show was the key. Uh, in the drug visions, he is uh, given a key and then it's, it shows up again in the different visions uh, when he goes to his old house, when he's at um, uh, at the dinner, uh, it shows up again after the dinner. And I think I finally kind of came to an understanding, at least for me, for what that key represents. What did you think of the key? Because it was first presented to him in his hallucination when he was hanging out with the F Society dude in the commercial. Yeah, so I the way I took that was, uh, and it ties to public and private key cryptography. And so I took the key metaphor a little bit more uh, literally. And I thought, okay, maybe that that represents his private key. Because in public key cryptography, the way that you verify and authenticate your identity is your possession of a private key that you then use to encrypt information. And that then someone can use your public key to decrypt that information because only the holder of the private key can encrypt information that can be decrypted with their public key it's a way to authenticate identity. And so when, you know, in the drug visions, he's kind of given the key more literally, but as the visions kind of unfold and at the very end, when he's talking to Angela and Angela says, you know, the key doesn't fit and it didn't come from you. um, That to me is like this idea that he is grappling with notions of identity and authentication. And that in some ways, and maybe literally, he's aware of the cognitive dissonance of him holding the private keys to something that he should not have access to. Oh, that's a very interesting uh, way to see that. And I can completely see how the key is tied to identity and it could be tied to the bigger issues that he's grappling with around uh, bringing down mega multinational corporations and the key to maybe unlocking a Pandora's box, not to mix another metaphor. With his knowledge and his ability, I saw the key as being closed off aspects of himself and his identity. So I, I definitely saw it more on on who are you, Elliot? Because Angela said you're only a month old. Yeah, I caught that as well. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And so when the episode begins, we learn that Elliot has a masterful plan to basically destroy Steel Mountain from a much more practical standpoint than just hacking and all this esoteric stuff. He wants to mess with the climate control of Steel Mountain to basically destroy all of the data reserves because we all know that those data houses require an enormous amount of ventilation because they generate so much heat. And the first place they want to target is the Steel Mountain facility deep in the Adirondacks. So in very firm mountain ground somewhere way out in the in the woods. What did you think of that plan? It it was interesting because as they were talking through it, it kind of gave the viewer an idea of exactly how the current system, global system of data operates and the redundancies built in. Now, in this case, they kind of exaggerate some of the dependencies in the sense that they could just take down one place and deal with the backups overseas and there's no other redundancies. But I think it's an interesting way to get people starting to think about this issue of the physicalness of data, because oftentimes data we think of as very ephemeral, ephemeral, and you know just something that just exists in the ether. 
whereas Steel Mountain is the embodiment of the physicality of that data. The physicality and also the people who are there uh, who Elliot sees as security flaws more than actual people. In some ways, they're the daemons of this giant establishment. Yeah, I, I think so. Like they are, um, you know, they're to, to not mix too many different metaphors and shows, but, you know, the matrix and the agents in the matrix and how they all function to serve the needs of the matrix. It's kind of like what the people who work at Steel Mountain represent or Evil Corp. Yeah. And another thing I thought that was really interesting about this part of the story is we start to see that Elliot is having some major issues managing his addiction because he doesn't have the drug combination he's accustomed to. And he goes through this one of the uh, monologues that he gives where he talks about uh, how he he has come into possession of these drugs and he talks about the whole value chain of the pharmaceuticals and people who work at these different places steal the pharmaceuticals and sell it on down until it finally reaches Shayla, his drug dealer, and him. And I think it's really interesting to expose those daemons, right? Those processes of basically illicit drug trade that fuels addiction. Yeah, exactly. And he actually, I think if I remember the monologue correctly, refer references the viewer as part of what's led him to that final line that he's taking. And so we're kind of made complicit in his actions as well. We become the part of the demons that are driving this outcome. Yeah. And in the meantime, he's super paranoid thinking he's seeing men in black, which I was thinking is really funny because if you're in Manhattan, you're going to see a lot of men and women in black. <laughs> yeah, there's that scene where he's on the street and he sees those men and he thinks that they're the agents in black, goes back to his room and gets that knock on the door and starts to freak out only to discover that it's someone that he actually knows and not a man in black. Yeah, and then we spend a lot of time on the Con at the Coney Island F Society headquarters, which still continues to crack me up. And I think... You know, as I sh I'm sure you've noticed, this show is so filled with so many Easter eggs. If you really want to spend a lot of time doing screenshots of different scenes, you'll see all this, these great real-world references and kind of made-up tongue-in-cheek references. So behind Elliot in one of the scenes is an arcade game called Mallard Murder. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, like, like deer hunting or something, but they just call it Mallard Murder. <laughs> Did you notice that in the drug scene where he's having dinner and he's having dinner with uh, Angela actually, and she's eating a fish. It's a segue from the, the fish bowl scene and she's eating the fish and they're actually having dinner in all safe. Did you catch that? It was actually taking place in all safe. They're having dinner at cubicles. That's the dinner table. I did not notice that at all. And then after this scene in Coney Island, uh, when uh, Angela is telling Elliot that she can't take that key. It's actually in the funhouse on Coney Island. And she was telling him that all of that that she was doing at Allsafe was just for show. Angela has crafted a very careful persona that you can see cracks in that persona when she's snooping around on her boyfriend who's like, babe, I want to take you to brunch. There's probably a lot of truth to the visions that Elliot had in terms of his interactions as we may see later on as 
how Angela develops. I've been on a few rides in Coney Island. I don't know if you've been on any. Their haunted house ride is creepy, but not because it's scary, but it's like 150 years old and you feel like somebody is pushing you in a shopping cart. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) So the, so the demon, the, the cart demon is what makes it scary in that instance. (laughs) Totally, totally. Not the decrepit, half-working, scary things, the scary monsters. So we we are starting to see cracks in Angela. She's really hell-bent on destroying all safe and and anything else to save basically her father's identity and social security number, which sort of doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah, identity theft. And I think we start to see the protection protectionist kind of instinct uh, Angela has towards her father. Uh, Even when she realizes that he's at risk, she's, and it's not necessarily her risk, she's willing to take pretty strong action to protect him. And I think that scene where Angela is in Elliot's drug visions and then the scenes that play out with Angela and and Shayla after are really interesting because these are the two women in Elliot's life and they're getting on without him. These are two daemons that are continuing their subroutines while he's no longer in the picture and it's out of his control. I love that. And I love the scenes between Angela and Shayla because it's true. Shayla is sort of on her own trajectory. You know, when she walks Flipper, the dog, which is hysterical to call it Flipper, she doesn't really have any straight ahead course. She just takes her wherever the dog and she wants to go. And Angela is on her course and they're rolling on Molly and... Uh, come converge without Elliot. You saw that also mirrored with the relationship between Darlene and Trenton, which I thought were really great scenes as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting also. And I'm just going right back to Angela and Shayla. Do you, do you think that they're going to develop the romantic chemistry? Uh, I don't know if Angela is is willing to rock the boat too much. She seems pretty buttoned up to me. What do so, you think? I'm not sure. I, I think that was uh, one of the questions that I had after seeing that was just this question of, okay, where's this going? And and uh, how is this going to impact Elliot? Because these are the, kind of his two worlds. Like Angela in many ways, I, I guess the only one missing is Darlene from that picture. But between Angela and Shayla, they represent two thirds of his uh, bifurcated world or trifurcated world if you want to bring Darlene in. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is the first time I'm starting to realize that Elliot has feelings for Angela that may be more than just for childhood friends. Yeah, and I think that's what the dreams kind of get at is these issues of acceptance uh, about what, how much she knows about him, what she knows, um, and how she enables him to play these different roles that he plays in his life. You know, now that you mentioned it earlier about the hallucination sequence that Elliot had where he saw Angela, and then later on he saw that little girl on the bicycle, which I thought was a fabulous scene. Can you tell me what happened to that house? First, can you tell me, what's your monster? (laughs) I think you dropped this. Angela says to Elliot, as I mentioned, you were only born a month ago. You're afraid, afraid of your monster. Do you even know what it is? And then hands him the key. And then she says to Elliot, it doesn't fit. Yeah. And, and so that's why I started thinking about the, the private key thing is, okay, well, if you're 
if your private key is wrong, then you're, it's not going to work. Um, and also, did you catch that, that scene where S Society tells Elliot that they can edit memories, they can delete memories uh, if, need, if need be? And then he has that drug vision where he's walking down the street, and he's walking up to his childhood home, and then when he looks, he sees a piece of paper stapled to a tree where it says, error, you know, 404, 404 error, file not found. It's like his memories of his childhood have been deleted. Totally. And again, another technology reference. A lot, any of us who's ever used the internet has probably gotten a 404 message, a page not found. It's referencing the erasure of, of memory and, and maybe identity. In fact, at one point, doesn't she say, Angela say to him, Elliot, you're not Elliot during the sequence. At least Elliot had Mr. Robot to stay with him when he was going through those withdrawals. Yeah. Are you talking about that scene where he says, you're not Elliot, you're the, and it blanks out and it cuts that's right. else? Mm -hmm. And so that's the question is like, is she going to say the monster? Because all, of, all that time they're saying you need to, what's, who's your mom? What's your monster? And is he supposed to say, I'm, I'm the monster? Like that he, that Elliot as a person and persona is the monster that needs to be unlocked with that secret key. That's unclear to me. That's a great question. And there were a couple awesome references during that sequence. Yeah, I think you're onto something there that maybe it's implying that he's a monster. There were a couple really awesome, funny tongue-in-cheek references to tech that were in this dream sequence too. I'm sure you caught them. For one, when Angela was eating fish, and it wasn't QWERTY to fish, but it was a fish, Elliot was eating raspberry pie, which we know is a, a computer term, right? Raspberry pie. QWERTY to fish is a beta fish. <laughs> Those are two great catches. Thank you. And when Elliot met Angela back at Coney Island, they were playing a song by Queen called Perfume Genius. And I thought that was a brilliant song to choose. Wow. You you did find all the Easter eggs, or at least a lot of them. Well done. I'm a nerd. <laughs> I'm a nerd. I, I really like, um, again, this, this episode is filled to the brim with, authenticity and technology technology terms that we both recognize. And I really appreciated the way that they did it without hammering us over the head with it. Um, a Raspberry Pi, I remember like several years ago when Raspberry Pi came out, people were really excited about the kinds of things that Raspberry Pi would enable. And I did not think at that time that I'd be seeing it on a USA Network television show as part of the nefarious plot to bring down a multinational corporation. I know. It's so exciting. And it was also exciting and kind of humorous that a, a terribly terrifying hacker group like the Dark Army would be hanging out at a ping pong hall. <laughs> it was awesome. And it's very timely. I think there's a ping pong hall that's just opened up in San Francisco. So mm -hmm. I, I, think, uh, I think it's pretty uh, interesting that whether in a TV show in real life, Nerds and tech computer people do like ping pong. And beer pong. And beer pong, yes. <laughs> and so Darlene was pretty funny in this episode where she's basically announcing to the whole world, totally drunk, that she's destroying world corporations. She's bringing down society. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't actually catch a connection with uh, Cisco and 
the fact that he was the one that proposed to Darlene until I rewatched this episode. And then the, those two separate pieces of Cisco and Ollie and Angela and Darlene kind of all came together for me and it made more sense. Yeah. And I loved when Darlene and Trenton, first of all, the, the, the juxtaposition between the two where Trenton is basically watching Darlene basically fall apart and, and, and is sort of there to keep things going. I loved when they first met their connection to go on to meet Cisco. They were picked up in a stretch limo. And I thought that contrasted nicely with their vibe versus the F Society Arcade Hall vibe. I, I thought so too. And it made me wonder if those men in the suits and masks were related to Evil Corp in some way or some sort of corporate competitor to Evil Corp. That's a great point. And did you make out what kind of masks they were wearing offhand? Mm-mm. I think I, I, I did not. Yeah, those were really awesome and slightly foreboding. And it is a nice contrast. They could represent another another company that is as big as evil core but just more behind the scenes at least as far as our story is concerned the whole point of this episode is at some point an action will happen without our interaction at all at some point what we've built will go on to to surpass us and really not need us and function independently of us and that's what i love about technology is technology is always a reflection of who we are as people but also beyond who we are because it does have a life of its own in many ways and that even the intention in which technology was created can be subverted or adapted to some completely different uh, purpose or goal. Totally. I think the ending of the show, we should probably discuss where uh, Angela actually carries out her plan. I mean, what, what do you think about the way that the show ended up? Angela is definitely acting a little bit off character. She always seems like she tried to play everything so straight and buttoned up and do the right thing. And I think she's learned that doing that hasn't really served her very much. So she's being compelled by something that is very deep rooted in her too, right? First of all, to protect the only remaining parent she probably, that she has, right? And uh, to protect the people she loves. One thing that struck me is her interaction with Ollie about how she lives with this guy. They've lived together and they could not be world's apart any more than they are and and he's not trustworthy and now uh, he can't trust her and I was thinking how terrible it must be to have that living situation for both of them (laughs) and in some ways isn't that uh, a living situation that's all too common these days where we live with someone and there's the intimacy that's presumed because of that cohabitation but we live very separate worlds because so much of our lives now take place in these boxes um, or phones or devices, you know, these boxes being the computers that are isolating and private. Yeah. I mean, the extent to which they might as well be living across country from each other in terms of what their true intimacy is, I thought was remarkable. And I also thought another thing that really came up that was so strong is when Cordy the fish who, who was, you know, really a no BS kind of fish was basically telling Elliot, you know, time is money. You got to get moving. And he said, 
Elliot, when you live in a fishbowl, there's no such thing as change. I'm on a loop and it won't stop unless my life does. And I think a lot of that is referenced in this story and definitely with Angela and her actions at the end. Yeah, I, I think when I watched that scene, I was wondering how many of us basically live in that metaphorical fishbowl. And all we want is to be by the window. That's all we ask out of life is, <laughs> is we don't, we're not trying to become something other than what we are, but we just want a better view. Yeah, move move the darn window. That's That's a great metaphor for this episode and for life. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> We just want to be by the window, all of us. <laughs> well, this is a lot of fun, Henry. Thanks so much for chatting this week about Mr. Robot, episode four, season one. Uh, great talking with you, Margaret. Looking forward to the next one. Yeah, and I want to thank everybody who's been listening and subscribing and rating on iTunes or Stitcher or chatting us up on our Facebook page at Hello Friend. So definitely thanks for that. And I look forward to talking to you about episode five, Henry, really soon. Thanks, Margaret. So you may have noticed that our intro is a little unusual and incorporates a lot of so sounds that you may recognize if you've been around computing and technology for a while. If you feel like there's a sound that you want in there that we're not currently including, feel free to email us, message us, post uh, something on Facebook, send us a tweet, and suggest the sound that you'd like to have uh, in the intro music, and we'll do our best to accommodate you. That's such a cool idea that you have for that, Henry. And thank you so much for composing the original music for the Hello Friend Mr. Robot podcast. I think it sounds great, and I look forward to hearing what sounds we get to incorporate uh, at our users' suggestions. Great. Thanks, Margaret. Bye. Bye, Henry. Take care. All right. Bye. We're done, aren't we? That was about the time the withdrawal started. Remember? I know. I broke my own rule. But I have no Suboxone. What I do have? Clinical depression, social anxiety, a day job. A night job, confusing relationships, others depending on me, taking down the largest corporation in the world. And I chose it all. This line has wanted to own me my whole life. You've got mail.